Hey everybody, my name is Alex, and this is Lunchbox Radio. Now, before we get into it proper, um, I just wanted to remind everybody, and I've been reminding everybody um, this whole this whole week, including you'll hear on the news show, um, I remind you of this also, that I will be taking off, that this whole show will cease production between the 27th of December and the 16th of January, because I... I'm going on a big old vacation to Japan. Um, now, I've mentioned this before, but I will maybe put some stuff out in the meantime. Like, I got I, I got all the stuff to do it finally. Like, I, I have a portable mic, but I wanted a cable to be able to connect it to my iPad since I, I currently don't have a laptop. I do everything via a desktop and an iPad Pro because that's really all I need. But, um... I'm clearly not taking my Mac Studio. I'm not unplugging my Mac Studio and hauling it all over Japan with me. That's unhinged. I'm taking my um, iPad, a USB-C to USB-C cable, and my travel mic. And uh, that's how I will be posting content if if or when I post content um, from Japan. So um, just... Keep an eye on the feed. I'm not going to promise anything because I just kind of want to have a good time in Japan with um, myself. And also, I want to have a good time in Japan with Kie. Hi, Kie. I'll see you on the 5th. Um, so, um, but hilariously, I had a really, I had a really unique experience in just like my fandom. So first off. Um, and this will get into what we're talking about this week. But um, first off, I have learned to hate a new thing in fandom. And that's a lovely little web service called Qit. And if you have no idea what Qit is, first off, God bless you. You are living the best life. If you do know what Qit is, you may know it from such things as trying to get a badge on the on opening day. On the first, during the first hours of friggin' the anime NYC badge tales. You may know it from going to a museum, possibly. Um, I know it from two places now. I know it from trying to get a badge from Anime NYC. I tried the moment badges went on sale. And also, that meant that I couldn't get a three-day badge. I had to get three one-day badges. I had to get a badge for each day, not the triple pass, not the, like, three-day pass. I had to get one pass for each day, which was fine. Like, I'm an adult. I have money. But also, it just kind of sucks. Like, if you see me doing that, just, like, be like, hey, hey, bud, how about you take one of these instead? Like, how about you take the thing you clearly wanted instead? No, I had to buy three badges. It sucks. Um, and I'm sure that that's a way they keep attendance down so they can avoid, like, selling too many badges and breaking fire code in the Javits, which I'm sure it's not, it's not a great, it's not a great fucking thing to do. Um, but on that note, and that, by the way, that's with them moving to August, the Anime NYC moving to August, um, and so they could use the entire Javits Center because up until now, they've been using anywhere from a third of the Javits Center to two-thirds of the Javits Center. 
Now they're just using the whole kit and caboodle. There has always been an empty part of the Javits Center. And I'm not saying, like, something else is happening in there. I'm saying it has been empty, which is really suspect to me in a way that I'm like, just just pay the extra attendance and, like, use the whole... what. Anyway, so they're moving, and that still happened. But... When I was at Anime NYC, there was like this, there was this conundrum of a choice that I don't think that if, I don't think if um, the Japan Society had picked this, this would have happened. We could, could choose a date, this would have happened. And that was on the very first night of Anime NYC, um, I think it was September 17th. There was an opportunity, if you were a member, which I am a member of the Japan Society. I'm actually currently not. I let my membership expire. I'm going to renew it when I get back from Japan. Um, I figured I'd spend that 60 bucks in Japan first. Um, <laughs> instead of joining the Japan Society, that feels that feels counterintuitive in a way. Like I'm going to take 60,000 yen or like 75,000 yen away from myself, away from my trip, so I can join the society to support the culture that I'm going to experience for it, 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 it's insane. So I'm like, no, I'll, I'll renew this when I get back. It's not super pressing. I can always get that membership. It's not a big deal. But in any event, I, so because I, because I'm, because I'm a, because I'm a Japan society member, I get all kinds of opportunities to like go see things just before they happen. Otherwise, and this happens with any kind of, membership saying like part of the deal with the met with the met gala is like they all get to see that year's costume exhibit early like that's part of it it's not all of it certainly but it's part of it and like so like they they throw parties at the they throw art openings at the japan side i've been to a bunch of those they like they have screenings they have premieres and the premiere that was happening on the 17th was for this week's um, this week's topic, which we're going to jump into right now, and that is a little film from Studio Ghibli and Hayao Miyazaki in particular, 2023, called The Boy and the Heron, or How Do You Live? Anime Considered. Lunchbox Radio. Now, the first thing I want to talk about here is actually fairly interesting because the first thing I want to talk about is the fact that this film was... What's the best word for it? The first thing I want to talk about is the fact that this film was not widely publicized leading up to its release in Japan. It just kind of like people got a poster and then a couple screenshots and it was out. And all of Dudu... Ghibli was doing was like, no, we're not going to tell you shit about this. Go see it. And they were very unceremoniously like, just like, no, we've, we released it. Go see the thing. We're not going to like send you a screener. We're going to make you go to the theater. Sh- shithead. And so, first off, let me say, I have a lot of respect for that. 
I just have a lot of respect for that. Because this is not like some indie darling to to us anime heads. It could feel like an indie darling film. If we think like the outside doesn't know the outside of Otakudom doesn't know doesn't know what we're on about. But believe me it's not. Hayao Miyazaki is like considered the Walt Disney of Japan. When people speak he lit when when he speaks people listen kind of thing. And there's been a I mean, because of the new Studio Ghibli movie out, there's been all kinds of like interview clip with him specifically about Studio Ghibli floating around, one in which he's like, yeah, Studio Ghibli will fall apart, but that's fine. Things fall apart. Like, and it's like seen as being so sad, but I'm like, you mean, you mean legendarily cranky anime grandpa get off my lawn screams at clouds? <laughs> Miyazaki is kind of pessimistic about the existence of his own studio after he's done or after he leaves or dies or whatever. Surprise, surprise. Um, but like, I like, I, that was like a, that was like a thing on, um, on one, on an anime fan page thing that I follow on Instagram. I was just like, this proves nothing. Like if, if you've been paying attention, Miyazaki has been just in the worst mood since like 1982. And we all just kind of are used to it at this point. Um, but the, but probably the most weirdly impressive thing about this film is in the credits. And that's because oftentimes these films are primarily, are primarily the work of one studio, but they have, they enlist other studios for um, assistance. Like, like they're like, Oh, this is a huge movie. We can't do these specific cuts. Or we can't handle this specific aspect of it by ourselves, but we know somebody who can, so they get on the phone and they, you know, call this anime at this studio or this studio or that studio. And like, hey, can you handle doing this? A great example of this is in Shirobako. If you watch Shirobako, you'll see that a lot of the main character of that job is just driving shit to people. <laughs> and that's because those animators are independent animators who are working with that studio, they are not necessarily part of that studio. And that that's kind of like... That's kind of the creative professional world in a nutshell anyway. I When I was a creative... When I was a freelance creative in New York City, I never worked for one. I worked for... A couple of times I worked for one person for a sustained period of time, but for most of my time, I was freelance. I was a gun for hire. I was a wandering samurai, a ronin of sorts in the industry, as lots of people are. Like, I got hired by a giant ad firm publicist to go work on the Cadillac ad campaign for, like, 
two or three months or something. I got hired by, for a much longer stint, for, I got hired by um, a firm called Creative Block. I got hired by them multiple times, usually around Christmas, um, to just, like, come in and do work. To come in and do creative work for them. And one of those was an internal video for AstraZeneca. Another one was, um, was like, was some app layout stuff. And another one was just a kidney cancer drug campaign that, like, I was, I was just in the room and everybody was like, we, we can't figure this out. Give it to Alex. <laughs> and I just did it. And I was like, hand it off. I'm like, here, defend my work. Go for it. <laughs> Which the um the creative director and I had a really good um working and just kind of like chummy relationship. <laughs> we were a little bit like dumb and dumber in that role, but it was it was really great. But my point is is that like I said, when Hayamizaki speaks, people listen. And if you look at the animation assistance section of the credits. This thing reads like a who's who of holy fuck, don't these people have better things to be doing than working on this? Than doing like this CGI for a couple scenes of like Studio 4C, don't you have other stuff? Like uh, other more pressing things than working on the CGI for this for these couple of scenes in this film? Well, I guess the old guy did, the old man did say he had a movie, and somebody did ask you, so good on you. Same thing with production IG. Studio, the only one that makes a lot of sense is Studio Panak split, if you've ever seen a Studio Panak film, there's only been two, um, the, the which one and the, um, Little Heroes short one. I think those are the only ones they've done. Um, they split off of Studio Ghibli, when Studio Ghibli announces they'd be ramping down, um, when Studio Ghibli kind of lied they'd, they'd be ramping down because um, everybody's favorite anime and cranky anime grandpa was pretending he was going to retire again, only for real, for real this time. Um, I'm not, I'm not old Japanese man chair, I promise. <laughs> but in any event, so that gives you an idea of like, the magnitude of this thing and why they weren't advertising it in Japan. Because everybody was going to go see this fucking thing. It was not going to be hard. Case in point, um, the, and the reason why I brought up um, Cuit is I went to see this. I went. To, I went to see this movie after making my reservations for the Studio Ghibli Museum in Japan online, which was. Which was like a one-to-one as harrowing, only more so actually, because I had to um, take Kie into account because we had specific days when we wanted to go or Kie could go and I wanted to go with her. So we were planning on going on one of two days. We ended up going on a completely different day because that was the day when she could guaranteed go and when I could get tickets. (laughs) But my point is that this... This film didn't need an introduction. It's certainly not in Japan, but here it super got one. But the other thing that's weird about 
second runs of movies. And what I mean by second runs of movies is, oh, like, other country premieres of movies. It's, the whole thing already exists. You, like, you haven't got a tra- you, you don't just have a trailer cut. The whole thing is just there for people. And so by the time it's even close to premiering in America, people have the film. And on the 17th, I could have gone to I could have gone to Japan Society to see a special members only screening of The Boy and the Heron. I was obviously going to Anime OC and was like, I'll do that later. But not only that, but like I could have gone to see it on the 17th, um, and like two more days after that. It was it was not hard to go see this movie. I ended up going to see it on opening day because I thought that was fair. Um, on official opening day. Like, I could have gone to see it on, um, November, on September 17th. I could have gone to see it on at, at least one more time. I think it was September 22nd. I ended up going to see it on December 8th with the rest of the world, with the rest of America. But I, I just thought it was really interesting that, like, this movie's prestigious enough where they're having, like, these limited edition, these limited time screenings that, like, if you're just on the right mailing list or you're part of the right club, you could just go see this movie at any point between, like, early December, early, probably not even early September, early November and, like, now. So just just know that when you're, like, thinking, like, I have to wait. You can usually look around and maybe fu- get your way into some like screen, a special screening or something if you if you're determined about it. But like I said, I had the really unique, I had a really unique experience of reserving the tickets for the museum and then going to see this film. Uh, actually, going to see this film and then reserving the tickets for the museum, and. I'll be honest, I'm not... Well, before, before we get to that, let's, um, let me take a break, and you can hear from I, and she gives you a lovely plot synopsis of this brand new Studio Ghibli feature film. So take it away, I. Absolutely! The Boy and the Heron is a fantastical film set during the Pacific War, It tells the story of a young boy named Mahito Maki, who, after the death of his mother, discovers an abandoned tower in his new town. This tower serves as a gateway to a mystical world, where he encounters a talking gray heron. The story unfolds as Mahito, longing for his mother, embarks on an adventure in a realm where the boundaries between the living and the dead blur, and where death ceases and life takes a new form. The narrative begins with the tragic death of Mahito's mother in a hospital fire in Tokyo. This event leads to Mahito relocating to the countryside with his distant father, Shoichi, and a new stepmother, Natsuko, who is pregnant and also the sister of Mahito's deceased mother. In this backdrop of familial change and the turmoil of war, Mahito's father, Seichi, who runs a munitions factory, remarries Hisako's younger sister, Natsuko. Mahito is then evacuated to his maternal grandparents' house, along with the factory. The film weaves a poignant tale of loss, discovery, and the thin line between life and death, portrayed through the eyes of a young boy in a time of great upheaval and change. Thank you, I. Now, 
let's get into what I thought about the thing. The so every Studio Ghibli movie from re, in recent years have been fairly have been much lighter in comparison to this. Yes, you have standouts like Graves of Fireflies or Princess Kaguya, but by and large. What people think about Studio Ghibli is they think about... Mostly they probably think about Spirit Away. Or you think about another standout. Oftentimes, including mine, people's first Studio Ghibli movie, which is specifically Princess Mononoke. And if you're going to put this... If you're going to put this... If you're going to put The Boy and the Heron, which I'm just going to call it, the boy and the heron for the entire show. Um, although how do you live is a much more apt title. (laughs) We'll get to all that in a second. Um, if you're going to put the boy and the heron in like a studio Ghibli pocket, it would go in the same pocket as something like Nausicaa, Princess Mononoke, that kind of stuff. It's much... Le- it is whimsical. It's whimsical and actually kind of almost some of the same way that Prince Mononoke is. But it is much darker. It is working with much darker, almost horror images <laughs> at some point. Especially um, regarding the heron with fucking human teeth. <laughs> which is so, so unsettling. Um, but... The point is that it's it sits alongside something like Prince Minoki, Grave of the Fireflies, Nausicaa, in that it is having a heavier conversation about a heavier topic than the grab bagness that can kind of occur in something like. Spirit Away. Spirit Away is much less about one thing and more about a bunch of things that Hayao Miyazaki was thinking about alongside making that film. The difference here, though, is I think that something like Nausicaa or something like certainly Grave of the Fireflies or something like definitely Princess Mononoke hits the mark a lot more. And what I mean is it's that, and the, the, but the huge, the, like, big grading curve that we're not accounting for there is that Princess Monoki and Nausicaa are both about the environment and both about, like, environmentalism, preserving, like, we have a duty to preserve the Earth or the Earth will kill us. <laughs> the, the, those... Hayao Miyazaki understands something about um, sustainability that lots of people who are into sustainability don't even get, and that is that if we fuck this up, nothing happens to the Earth. The Earth keeps spinning. The Earth does not give a shit. If we fuck this up, we kill ourselves. If we fuck this up, we convince the Earth that we are to be murdered. (laughs) And that is so... 
that is a that's such a different place to understand environmentalism from than throw your paper bags out to protect the turtles. Like, yeah, will some turtles die? Yes, but will their bodies like decompose and release methane in the water, therefore heating it and fucking? This is not real. None of this is science. Do not judge this on science. Therefore, diluting the polar ice caps and drowning us all. Also, yes. Like, and the the thing with this the thing with this film it the thing with this film in particular is that it's tackling a much more complex, deeply emotional. Not that environmentalism can't be complex and deeply emotional, but much more aware, like, human-centered topic. And that is, and by the way, spoiler alert for The Boy and the Heron, if you haven't seen it, it's in theaters, you can go see it. But, and it's definitely in wide fucking release. But um, this film is dealing with the idea of coping after someone's death and what that looks like and how alien it can feel in the moment and how strange it can, how strange and otherworldly it can feel. But I don't, so my problem here is that he took a, it's that, Hayao Miyazaki and Studio Ghibli took a really Studio Ghibli approach to this, and I'm not sure it totally works. I'm not sure it totally matters in the way that they think it does. It It is as whimsical and as magical on almost every level as something like print, like um, Spirit Away. There's clearly this, like, understanding of, like, okay, this is how we light up the same parts of the brain that Spirit Away did, but they were trying to get... They're trying to get somewhere different with it, and I don't... It doesn't always work. And part of the movie, uh, in, in every part of the movie, is, like... It's beautiful. There are parts that are haunting. There are parts that are as haunting as the first time you saw Princess Mononoke. There are parts that are as, like, wistful and beautiful as, or as adorable as the, they're, so, I had a conversation with um, Kie about this because I had to call her to make sure she could go to the museum on a certain day before I made the reservation, um, and she said, yeah, and she's like, yeah, sure, do it. I'm like, cool, I'll text you when I have the tickets. I, when I, when if I get the tickets, let's go. Um, but, and I said this to her, and she totally agreed, because she also saw it. Because, <laughs> once again, this this is the kind of, like, appointment viewing that, that you, they didn't even need to advertise in Japan. <laughs> but the thing I said was, like, I, it was beautiful, but the plot was really disconnected. The plot feels 
like it, it it's just it doesn't have the connective tissue it needs and it's a bunch of ideas that don't sit well next to each other all the time and that like i said it's not to say it's not a beautiful film it's absolutely a beautiful film it's there are moments that are haunting and beautiful and incredible and you're like oh my god but the thing is that you don't that it doesn't it, the whole film doesn't hang together and not only doesn't hang together it doesn't it doesn't super it's like it's not all talking to each other but it's also not talking of what the points aren't dating themselves clearly in a way. And this is this is really interesting because up until now in most Miyazaki movies, it, and actually that's not true. The other one where it doesn't super where stuff isn't super clear is Ponyo. Ponyo is like is a little bit of a mess. It's oftentimes people's least favorite um, Miyazaki film for a reason. It's it's just kind of it's just kind it gets by by being cute as hell. This film, especially with the addition of the heron, who is just a nightmare. Just a nightmare creature. It doesn't, um, it doesn't really have that, it doesn't have that cuteness at all times. And the, uh, but the other thing that it does, that's a, kind of a point of the movie, is when it introduces, like, the maximum amount of cuteness, which is in the form of the Warawara, which is, if you've seen this film and you know what the Warawara are, You'll know what I mean by this. I saw those things pop up on screen. And I was like, holy shit. They're going to sell so many of those things. <laughs> because the Warawara are these little, like... They're little spirits. And they're supposed to be unborn... Like, the spirits of unborn children. <laughs> and the movie super just said, Oh, this is what... To um, its main character, Maito. It says, oh... This is where you came from. You used to be one of these little guys. They go up in the, they float up in the sky to be born. And you're like, oh, fuck. Those are unborn children. <laughs> that's, mm, that's a lot. They're so cute, though. And then as soon as they start floating up into the sky, fucking pelicans come to devour them. <laughs> and you're like, holy shit. This movie had no chill. And that's the moment at which you're like supposed to understand, like, oh, this movie has no chill. This movie is like, this movie is like working, this movie is supposed to kind of feel like working through grief. On lots of people's different levels. Uh, you see, and you see it from a bunch of different angles. You see Mahito is the main character. You experience him working through his grief. And then you see Mahito's father um, clearly, like, doing his best trying to keep it together for his kid, but, like, making some very <laughs> widow dad moves in the fucking process. And so 
this movie is taking place in the middle of, um, in the middle, I don't think it's, a, um, there'll be people who tell you it's, um, it's at the end of, the, of, um, World War II. I don't believe it is. Um, I mentioned, I think it's like in like the Pacific, like Pacific, like Pacific War or something, but it's some, it's clearly in the middle of some war because, they are still producing plane parts. Like, they're still producing things that people need for planes to go, like, fly and fight. <laughs> so it's, it's, that's your hint that the war isn't over. But also, like, they bring the plane parts to the house at some point, which is just, which is just the most, the most I'm grieving and I don't know what to do signifier I've seen in a film is wild. Um, let's bring all these very valuable, very fragile things up this hill into this old house with all of these old women. <laughs> Just leave them here for a period of days. <laughs> because that's great. That's fantastic judgment. But my point is, is that this movie really wants to kind of show this cycle of healing and regression almost like the tide of water constantly in the film until it doesn't. So, um, essentially, Mahito goes into this, into the tower that I mentioned, um, looking for his father's new wife, who is his mother's, who, not, who died in, um, who died in a hospital fire, who died in a, who died in a hospital fire caused by a fire bombing, um, sister. So, part of the coping journey that the father is on is that, like, he married his deceased wife's sister, which is a wild fucking choice, is a choice that lots of men across history have made in some way or another for some reason or another. But that doesn't mean it doesn't feel fucked to the kid. If there was a kid involved there, that's got to feel like a weird nightmare. You married my aunt after my mom died? You... Fucking emotional hobo. <laughs> and you can see in the beginning of the movie that, like, Mahito's going fucking through it. He's going through, he's clearly going through grief. He's clearly, and he, like, lashes out at his class, at his new classmates. He makes it seem like they beat him so he can at least get sympathy. But, like, he could have done a lot of things to make it seem like they beat him. But what he does, he picks up a rock and he bashes his skull in with it. And he just walks home with just giant gash on his head. Um, and it's just like... It's... The whole, the whole film feels like a lot and it feels like... It feels intentionally like... There's always this hope. It feels intentionally, at first, 
like there's this hope that Maito's mother is alive. And the film is immediately like, what are you talking about? No, we're not gonna undo, we're not gonna play undo death games. Except they totally do. They introduce this teenage version of his mother. And essentially, and it becomes a way for him to say goodbye one last time when he has to leave. And the film, but the film also gives him this opportunity to stay in this world and basically run it. <laughs> but the plot is like you should probably leave, my guy. Like this is this is not a help. Sitting in this sitting in this weird old man's chair and playing with blocks under this large ominous stone. Not a great not a great emotional choice for you. And just like, like I said, a lot of the movie's haunting, a lot of the hauntingness is just that crow, that that heron has human teeth and speaks, and speaks like the fucking hobgoblin from fucking... (laughs) So, when the heron is in like his human form, I get big Danny DeVito vibes. When the heron is in heron form, I get big Willem Dafoe via the Green Goblin vibes. It's so upsetting. It's so upsetting. It's so unhinged. And But it's also like when Maito encounters this heron, he instantly fucking hates it. It's clearly torturing him. But he... Darren's also like, hey, your mom's alive. Come with me. I'll take you to her. And then completely fucking lies to him to get him ensnared in this world so this old man can ask him to be his replacement. And it's just so much. It's so much just constantly and all the time. Uh, But like I said to first... Kie and now to you, it feels the plot feels disconnected. It doesn't feel. Don't get me wrong. It, is it a terrible movie? No. Is it like a great movie? Also, no. It's kind of just okay. And not not every movie has to be incredible. There are incredible moments about like the scene where. Basically, him and his um, mother's sister, his aka his stepmother, are like trying to reach each other through just piles of bandages and paper. That like it feels like you're watching curse videotape. It's wild. It's insane. It's so well done. It's the magnitude of the amount of animation in that is like holy shit. But those moments pass. And then you're left with the Parakeet King, the fucking the Pelicans, the Wara Wara, who seem to survive on giant monster fish caught caught from the sea of the fucking afterlife. It's, it's crazy town. It, it, and but here's a really interesting thing. I 
I went to see this movie and I was talking actually to my mother about it because my mother um, is the person who brought home when I was like 12. She brought home um, actually before I was 12, like when I was like nine or something. Wait, wait, earlier than you'd think. Um, she brought home the VHS, the VHS copy that I would eventually watch for Princess Monoki. And that like, that was a like eye opener for me. It wasn't necessarily my first anime. I don't believe it could have been. Um, I've lost track over the years, but it it like left a it left a mark that will never vanish. That that is my favorite movie. I can recite it line for line. I love it to death. Awesome. And this one just isn't, as, like I've said before, cohesive. It, it, like, you get things like the Parakeet Empire, which is, which is a great visual, but it, like, they don't, you get things like the Warawara, which are, like, the next step in the cuteness evolution of this studio, in which it went from, okay, we got the, we got the four spirits. We got the soot sprites, and now we got the Wara Wara. We're just on the road to outcuting Sanrio as hard as possible. Um, but and I and I absolutely checked, and at some point they did make Wara Wara plushies. They were all snapped up by people and are now on eBay for hundreds of dollars. <laughs> which just which just made me and Kia sad when we were talking about it. She's like, because I said like, aren't those things cute as hell? I bet they'll sell a zillion of them. And she was like, I haven't seen them on store shelves. I'm like, I definitely saw them and I sent her a link. She's like, holy shit. I'm like, yeah, this was like being a fucking nerd now. It sucks. She was just like, I'm sorry, that blows. I'm like, yeah, it does. Um, almost solidifying the fact that we're going to go to the fucking gift shop for that fucking museum. Um, but in any event, I, the, the film clearly has something to say. It's clearly saying something about, it's clearly in conversation about death and mourning and grieving and, and moving on. And I think that's the real, like, um, key to this film is that it's not just about grieving a loss. It's about processing it and moving and being able at the end of that process to move forward from it. And, and the movie is a really great, um, Signal for this. After um, Maito's mother dies, they move. They move away from Tokyo. Him and his father move away from Tokyo to live with his aunt slash stepmother, <laughs> his former aunt, his former aunt, current stepmother. And then they, and then at the end of the movie. They all leave that house and move 
back to Tokyo. So, like, even in, even in the context of the movie, the physical place that that tower is, that they're living, is like this holding area where everybody involved is processing the loss of this person they all cared about. And then once that is all done with, they, like, leave. I um, would relate this to, um, to uh, Lady Eboshi losing her arm at the end of um, Princess Monoki. And if you've seen enough anime, there's a lot of anime where, like, the, where, like a character become disabled and they change because it's this, like, it's this very violent, active understanding of, oh, whatever I was doing got me, forced me to sacrifice an arm. Like, something I was doing fucked me over so hard that the world took an arm. <laughs> I should change. I've, I've done some self-reflecting, and it turned out I was the bitch the whole time. Um, <laughs> which is very much like a thing that Lady Eboshi is going through at the end of that film. She's like, yeah, I super fucked up. We should start over and, like, make this, but for real and better. And in this film, the end of the film is very much like, okay, we've, we've all, like, had a good cry. We've all processed our feelings. And now we are... We're ready to take the next step forward. We're ready to... We realize that the pain... That the pain we feel won't ever disappear, but it had dulled enough for us to, like... Go back into our lives. And I think that it's just... This is also a really interesting movie to come out after a global pandemic... (laughs) And because it's it's about processing loss, which is a thing that lots of people have had to either learn or reacquaint themselves with over the over the pandemic. And I think it's it's not an easy thing to like wrap your head around or try and talk about. But I think it I think the film does successfully have the conversation of. have a conversation about mourning and about closure and about like moving forward from a really bad place. So I'm, and I can say that this is a successful movie, but also not a, a movie that's okay. This movie is a very successful, okay film. And does that mean I think that he shouldn't be making movies anymore? No. I just think that this particular one is odd. But in but they're not all going to be like constant bangers. Lots of people love Princess Monokyo, love Nautica, and are disappointed by like Howl's Moving Castle or disappointed by Spirit Away, I'm sure. But the difference here is that this is so this is in kind of the new Ghibli style. And just the parts don't all fit together. And I don't know what to do there. But on that note, 
Um, if you like the show, new episodes happen every Wednesday and every Thursday. You can go listen to the previous Wednesday show, which is right before this. Um, it's a anime news show in which um, I put together a fancy AI-read anime news broadcast. It's a couple minutes long. Um, it's like story ad, story ad kind of thing. Um, you can definitely go check that out to like bone up on your anime news for the week. Um, and then these Thursday episodes are like this. They're me talking about a specific property or show or sometimes even manga. Um, <clears throat> sorry, I'm getting over a cold. That's why I'm all horsey. But, um, but yeah. So if you like the show, definitely subscribe in whatever you use to listen to me right now. And until next time, I've been Alex, and this has been Lunchbox Radio, and I'll talk to you later.